It has been said that battles win wars, topple thrones, and redraw borders. But anyone can win a battle. Heck, Harold Godwinson won the Battle of Stamford Bridge mere months before he was being castrated and beheaded by William's hand-picked squad of executioners on the battlefield of Hastings. Historical legacies are more based upon what happens after the battle is finished. A great leader's legacy lasts far longer than one battle or even one's lifetime. In this episode, we examine the legacy of William the Conqueror, as well as looking at a number of extras that came about because of his decision to launch an invasion across the English Channel. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the final episode in our series regarding the life of William the Conqueror. Episode 5, The Aftermath of the Battle of Hastings. The first segment of this episode involves the conquering of England. Duke William of Normandy defeated Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, but he wasn't crowned King of England until after the people of London had surrendered to him two months later. His coronation occurred at Westminster Abbey. The impressive structure had been built by Edward the Confessor, Harold's predecessor and still resides along the Thames. It was deemed Westminster so that the locals wouldn't confuse it for the more in-use Eastminster Abbey. Although the building still hosts daily masses, the church really retains two key functions. First, it serves as a tourist site, and secondly, as the location for the monarch's coronation. After considering its early history, however, one might wonder why this became the traditional location. After all, the site hadn't conveyed any luck upon William's predecessors. Although Edward had poured sweat and tears into the creation of the architectural masterpiece, he was too ill to attend the official consecration of the abbey as a church in December of 1065. His successor, Harold, therefore, was the first monarch crowned at the abbey. But William, who usurped Harold's crown, decided to continue the tradition, enshrining the practice for the next thousand years. After 200 years of continuous use, the abbey began to show its wear and tear. King Henry III ordered it to be rebuilt utilizing modern Gothic techniques. The bones of Edward's original Westminster remain beneath the modern-day structure. As part of the construction, Henry ordered Edward the Confessor to be literally lifted up out of his grave in order to reassign his eternal resting point beneath Westminster's high altar. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was common for aristocrats to be buried within a church's grounds which they believed separated themselves from the peasants for the afterlife, and thus maintaining the partition that had been erected between the social groups on earth. 
Today, the Abbey contains a who's who of British history, as visitors walk over the gravestones that hold their names. If you ever get a chance to see Westminster in person, you'll find that it's shocking to literally be standing on the names of the greatest that history has had to offer. But there's only one gravestone that you're unable to walk upon, that of the unknown soldier from World War I, who is set there to represent the thousands of soldiers whose graves will never be correctly marked. Besides the kings and queens of England, physicist Sir Isaac Newton, geologist Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, the author of Oliver Twist and the Christmas Carol, Geoffrey Chaucer of Canterbury Tales fame, as well as the Jungle Book's author Rudyard Kipling, are all interned within the grounds. Many other notable figures such as Winston Churchill, William Shakespeare, and Diana of Wales are all memorialized within the Abbey, but buried elsewhere. Death was more than an acquaintance during the Middle Ages, a fact that I am reminded of each time I gleefully watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The fourth scene of the movie teaches about the Black Plague, as a medieval trash collector comes for the pickup of all those who have passed away, proclaiming his passage by repeatedly calling for the citizens to bring out their dead. When one not-quite-dead individual is thrown upon the heap, courteous argument occurs with the man's family, declaring that he'll be dead soon anyways, while the collector reveals that he'll be back again next Tuesday. With the specter of death looming over them at all times, the poor weren't afforded coffins upon their passing, which led to some interesting geographical anomalies during this age of death. For instance, Eastern Europeans worried that those who died in sin would come back from the dead as demons, and thus first staked their hearts before setting their loved ones six feet into the ground. Rather than eliminating the ability to pump blood through their veins, the stake was meant to literally keep them from rising up out of the ground. With an iron rod being used as wood would eventually rot, to release the undead creature to terrorize the village. Personally, a stake through the heart appeals to me ever since I read Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Premature Burial. Poe reveals a number of true stories of those who were buried before their time, likely due to their body falling into an undetected coma. The problem was so widespread in the 18th and 19th centuries that there were more than 30 patents filed in Germany for what was referred to at the time as a safety coffin. The winning design belonged to Dr. Johann Gottfried Taberger in 1829, and it involved a shielded bell whose string traveled down into the coffin in a tube that prevented rainwater from wetting the corpse as well as tight mesh that hopefully would keep the insects from enjoying their inevitable meal. If the bell were rung, the cemetery's night watchman would insert a second tube in order to transfer air into the coffin via bellows, before then hopefully digging up their undead client.
Next, we can examine how William consolidated his rule. He did so over the next two decades through a series of policies. First, he stripped the lands and titles of all those who fought against him at Hastings. This freed up a significant portion of land, which was then transferred to Norman loyalists. This is the beginning of organized feudalism on the shores of England. Feudalism was the dominant economic system of the age before it gave way to mercantilism during the Age of Discovery and colonization. Feudalism entrenched a caste system, with peasants at the bottom and the king at the pinnacle of the ascending caste pyramid. The king owned all of the land, and everyone beneath him served at his pleasure. Because no one wants to cut the grass when your yard is the entirety of England, the king handed out land, or fiefs, to individuals to care for it. These loyalists received massive tracts of fertile and productive land, far too much for themselves to handle, so they in turn passed down portions of their land to their own set of loyalists. As is typically the case, the peasants were the individuals who got screwed over in this system. Four days out of the week, they were forced to work for their individual landlord, or tenant-in-chief. The tenant-in-chief then gave a portion of his profit up the pyramid, and so on and so forth, until the king received his payment. The peasant was allowed to use the remaining days to work on his own land, unless, of course, there was a religious holiday, or a lord had called them to serve as an impromptu warrior. The ability to work their own land was the hope that the feudal system sold to peasants. The old dream that if you work hard enough, one day you could be a lord yourself. However, the land was too small for them to ever make a profit. The peasants' housing, tools, and food were all rented from the lord, all of which were designed to maintain the peasants in a state of perpetual debt. Even the ability to leave the land was heavily regulated, as neighboring lords were sure to return any runaways in a tacit agreement that the favor would be returned. Thus, medieval Europe established a system of slavery, which has managed to avoid the harsh word itself. Labor was a perpetual cycle with mandatory requirements to produce capital for someone else, along with one's travel and marital rights, which were closely controlled by their overseers. There are, however, a growing number of historians who claim that the whole concept of feudalism is more about getting a grasp on how to understand this era than an organized, entrenched system. This school of thought points out that the word feudalism itself never appears in a single document from the era. Professor Lynn Harry Nelson is among those who believe that the concept of feudalism was more of an ad hoc system, suggesting that the early medieval kings and their knights held a monopoly of violence and seized land and territory. With everything taken, there was little choice but to listen to the landowners and eke out as much of a living as one could. He compares the agreements to consolidate territories to the mobsters that resided in America in the 1920s, as rival groups would size each other up 
before coming to the realization that a private agreement would serve them better than a turf war. Stories which glorified the bond between Lord and Vassal, such as the many iterations of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, served as political camouflage for the horrors that the system imposed upon those who had little power to influence the events around them. For these people, it was enough to do as Dory would, just keep swimming. Whether it was designed or evolved naturally, the version of feudalism that arrived with William the Conqueror established a legacy of French aristocrats in the British Isles for the next two centuries. They settled in quickly, bringing about many French traditions as well as their language. About one-third of all English words come from French, while another third came to the British shores indirectly from Latin through French. The linguistic diffusion was so vast that it is believed that English speakers are able to immediately recognize 15,000 French words. In order to extract every penny from his new subjects, William launched England's first census in 1085. Twelve months later, the Doomsday Book gave William's successors a complete picture of the lands that they ruled. 13,418 areas were visited for the collection of information. Rather than just taking their word for it, inspectors searched out any hidden individuals to ensure that the book was as accurate as possible. Still, the record only focused on heads of households. Thus, it remains impossible to figure out the exact number of residents during this time period. Still, the book remains a remarkable achievement, as it contains more than 2 million words scrawled across 888 pages made of 900 sheepskins. The Doomsday Book made it significantly more difficult for nobles to skim taxes off the top. Previously, the king would ask for his tribute and have to trust that the nobles were providing the right amount. Now the king was able to determine the exact amount of wealth that was being generated by the lord's land. He needed to tighten up the nation's tax collection in order to pay for the castles that he had built in the wake of his invasion. Perhaps more than anything else, William was a castle builder. The ability to wage war had advanced significantly faster on the mainland of Europe. Britons were said to have been extremely ineffective at defending themselves during a siege. The castles that had been built prior to the Battle of Hastings were mostly earthworks, with either small ditches or sharpened sticks stuck into the ground. William's early preference was a wooden Mott and Bailey model, which had first sprung up in the French province of Anjou, a rival to William's Normandy. These fortresses could be built with speed, taking a mere month versus the ten-year timetable of a stone keep. They consisted of two distinct parts. The word mot is from the Norman language and means mound. Likewise, bailey is Norman for enclosure. The interior defensive position was the mot, a small tower that was built upon an artificial hill. The hill was slowly built up with each layer being capped by stone in order to support the eventual weight 
as well as to supply drainage. The Mott in Hampstead Marshall contains more than 22,000 tons of soil. The height of the hill was the point of the castle, allowing all citizens in the nearby area to see the awe-inspiring power that the local lord possessed. The size of the hill ranged from 25 feet all the way up to 80 feet. The structure atop the mound is usually a mere two to three stories tall, but the steep sides of the hill made it a costly endeavor to assault. Beneath the mott was the enclosed bailey. This flat land was always within bowshot from the keep and allowed for some food production in order to aid in withstanding a siege. The rush to build castles suggested that William's England was very much a nation which was being ruled by oppressive invaders. Gradually, the Norman overlords were able to progress to stone keeps. It is here that William's castle building legacy truly takes off. Windsor Castle remains the oldest and largest occupied castle in the world, as the British royal family still calls it home to this very day. But the most striking example of William's architecture skills belongs to the Tower of London, and it is worthy of a deep dive into its own remarkable history. Let's start with the Tower's origins. The Tower of London was finished in 1078 by William the Conqueror. It was built in part to protect William, who was still viewed as a foreign invader, within his new capital city of London. William's son and successor created the stone walls that make up the inner ward in 1097, replacing the original walls that were made of only timber. A moat was finished in 1285 by Edward I. The Tower of London has served a number of purposes throughout its history, including roles as a royal residence, a prison, an armory, a treasury, a menagerie, and a tourist site. The original tower contained the building known as the White Tower. At the time, this building was the tallest in London and offered a view of the entire city. The tower grounds were expanded mostly by Richard the Lionheart, Henry III, and Edward I. The River Thames provides protection for the castle from the south. In 2016, 2.7 million people visited the Tower of London and the White Tower, the original structure built by the conquering Normans. Altogether, it has been called the most complete example of an 11th century palace in Europe. The tower itself stands 90 feet high and was originally three stories high with an entrance that had a wooden staircase that could be removed in the event of an attack, in part as its intention of being used as a royal residence, the tower has four garden robes at the top of the towers, which are chutes that served as latrines, in case you were wondering how ancient castle plumbing worked. There were also a mere four fireplaces built into the original structure, which would have been full of drafts within the cold stone keep. 
Although the tower was designed to protect the king from his citizens, a few British monarchs found themselves as prisoners within its walls. In 1381, the 14-year-old King Richard II was held up in the Tower of London during the Peasants' Revolt. In 1399, Richard ended up imprisoned in his own castle. Richard had lost the support of the nobles and parliament in 1386 after setbacks against France in the Hundreds' Year War. The king compounded his political problems at home by sending an army north against Scotland in seeking a victory that he could sell to his people. Richard led the expedition north himself, but they never engaged the enemy and came back empty-handed. Faced with a potential invasion from France, the king's chancellor ordered the parliament to massively raise taxes. Parliament responded by demanding that Richard sack his chancellor, to which Richard replied that he would not dismiss as much as a scullion cook from his kitchen at parliament's request. It was at this moment Parliament seized control of the royal finances and gradually isolated the king from his inner circle of advisors. Even his uncle abandoned Richard, with John of Gaunt traveling to Spain in an attempt to gain the Spanish throne after a plot on his life was discovered. In 1397, the king felt powerful enough to move against Parliament and had a number of their leaders arrested. This began a phase that historians refer to as the tyranny of Richard II. He announced that all the acts of Parliament against him were null and void, and proclaimed that no restraint could legally be put on a king. John of Gaunt's son, Henry of Bolingbroke, had been previously exiled by the King of France. But France allowed Henry to travel back to England in 1399, while King Richard II was in Ireland with most of his army of knights. On August 19, 1399, Richard II surrendered to Henry at Flint Castle. He promised to give up the throne if his life was spared. Henry went on to become King Henry IV, and immediately had the now-deposed king imprisoned in the Tower of London on September 1st. Richard is thought to have starved to death while in captivity, as a time frame was not discussed within the negotiations of the promise to spare his life. Among the tower's most famous stories is that of the Princes of the Tower. The Princes of the Tower refers to the famous unsolved mystery of Prince Edward, age 12, and his brother, Prince Richard, age 9 the sons of Edward IV. Their uncle, the Lord Protector slash Duke of Gloucester, Richard. Edward the King died unexpectedly after an illness that lasted for around three weeks. Richard the King's uncle took the throne for himself and had Parliament declare both of the princes as illegitimate heirs. The law claimed that Edward's marriage to the boy's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, was invalid because of a pre-contract of marriage with another woman. After the legal proceedings concluded, the boys disappeared in the Tower of London and were never seen again. Most histories believed that they were murdered to help secure their uncle's ascension to the throne. 
1674, some workmen remodeling the Tower of London found two human skeletons that some believe were the princes. Although most historians believe that Richard is the murderer, there are a number of other possibilities, including the fact that they were killed in an escape attempt. Executions are another part of the long history of the Tower of London, for the White Tower has a number of ghost stories. Most famously is Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, who was beheaded at the Tower grounds. She supposedly haunts the Chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula, where she is buried, and has been said to walk around the White Tower carrying her head under her arm. Other famous ghosts include King Henry VI, Lady Jane Grey, and the Princes of the Tower. Executions were typically performed at the Tower Green. Beheadings were the most common, but later a scaffold was erected for executing members of the lower classes. Although there were not many instances of torture at the Tower, the lower basement of the White Tower did house a rack. Medieval executions were a nasty thing, as the headsman could require a number of blows to sever the victim's head. It was for this reason that the phrase, one for the road, was invented, as individuals escorted to the gallows were allowed to ask for one last drink before meeting their fate. The danger was, if the victim happened to bump into their executioner at the bar, as an axeman seen two blurry heads didn't make for a clean cut. The Countess of Salisbury, Margaret Pole, was struck 11 times with the axe before she finally died. She initially refused to lay her head on the block, and when the first blow hit her shoulder, she leapt up and ran off until she was chased down by the headsman. It was the executioner's first, and last day on the job. The Lady Jane Grey, who like Margaret Pole was another victim of Henry VIII, famously was seen with her mouth still moving as she finished the Lord's Prayer after her head was cleanly severed from her body. Consciousness remains for at least eight seconds after a beheading, at which point a lack of oxygen causes unconsciousness and eventually death. In fact, the practice of a headsman holding the head up in the air was not done to show the crowd, but to show the victim their own body. Guy Fawkes, the leader of the gunpowder treason, for which the 5th of November ought to never be forgotten, was also executed at the tower along with Sir Walter Raleigh and Thomas Beckett. The last execution on the grounds was of German spy Joseph Jacobs on August 15, 1941. He was killed by a firing squad. Those carried out with such tasks are sometimes known as the Beef Eaters, although officially they are known as the Yeoman Warders. The Beefeaters are more commonly known as the official guards of the Tower of London. These soldiers, all ex-military heroes, live at the Tower of London with their families and now serve as tour guides in addition to armed guards. 
In order to qualify as a yeoman warder, you must first have served in the Royal Armed Forces for at least 22 years. The term beef eater is likely a product of the fact that the guards were given a large ration of beef daily at the court in the 1600s, but no one knows the true origin. The first female yeoman warder, Moira Cameron, was appointed on July 1st, 2007. I've had the privilege of visiting the Tower of London twice in my life, and only one of those times did a beefeater point their very real pike at me when I disobeyed the ten different signs that told me I couldn't take pictures of the crown jewels of England, which is our next topic. The King and Queen's jewels have been on display at the Tower of London since 1669. The gorgeous display includes 23,578 gemstones, the 800-year-old coronation spoon, St. Edward's crown, and the imperial state crown. It also includes weapons such as the Great Sword of State, the Sword of Justice, and the Sword of Mercy. The display is almost always available for viewing, as the king or queen typically only utilizes items from the crown jewel collection at their inauguration. Until the 1600s, the inauguration procession began at the White Tower and continued all the way to Westminster Abbey. It was discontinued after the king complained that the conditions at the tower were so bad that you couldn't get a good night's sleep before the day's event. Also included in the collection are other treasures from the British Empire era, including the Kulanan Diamond, the largest gem-quality rough diamond ever found. It comes in at a beautiful 3,106.75 carats. the ravens, and other tower creatures. King Charles II ordered that at least six ravens must be kept at the tower at all times. No one is quite sure where the story came from, but it is now common belief that if the ravens ever leave the Tower of London, that the British monarchy will end. The best guess to the legend's origin comes from the supposed belief that Charles II was told that if the ravens left, the tower will fall, and Charles will lose his kingdom. Today, the human warders house, feed, and protect the ravens. All six are never seen at the same time, for fear that a terror attack could eliminate or free the entire flock. The ravens have one wing clipped to prevent them from leaving the grounds. Their lifespans are typically around 40 years in captivity, upon which they're replaced by a new raven. During World War II, only one raven was able to survive the hardships of the bombing during the London Blitz. Winston Churchill ordered new ravens to be brought in and officially enlisted them as World War II soldiers. The ravens weren't the only animals to have ever called the Tower of London their home. Records from 1210 show three years of payments to lion keepers, and it is known that Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II gave King Henry three leopards in 1235. 
1255, Henry III received an African elephant as a gift from Louis IV of France. The animal died within three years, although the cause of death is unsure. The two leading theories are that the English winter killed it, or that the king was feeding it too much red wine. In addition to lions, there were jackals, hyenas, monkeys, wolves, and a brown bear named Max. In 1831, the animals were all moved to the London Zoo. Elizabeth I also had some history with the Tower of London. Elizabeth I is regarded by most historians as one of the greatest monarchs in England's long history. Some even count her as the single greatest monarch that the country has ever had. Elizabeth's father was the infamous Henry VIII. His first marriage produced a daughter named Mary. Frustrated that his wife, Catherine of Aragon, was unable to produce a son, modern science of course points out that there is zero control over this from either the woman or the man, but that didn't matter much to poor Henry. Henry asked the Pope to grant a divorce over the issue, but was refused. This meant that if he proceeded with the divorce, any children that he had with his next wife would be deemed illegitimate and at risk to a succession crisis. Henry broke from the Catholic Church over this and brought the Protestant Reformation to the shores of England. Henry's church was quite similar to the Catholic faith, with the notable difference of allowing divorce for monarchs. Henry immediately married Anne Boleyn, his wife's lady-in-waiting. Anne became pregnant quickly, but bore a daughter whom Henry named Elizabeth. Anne was executed at the Tower of London for Elizabeth's failure at being born a man. Henry proceeded to marry four additional women, only one of whom was able to produce a son, but that boy was born with a genetic illness and died shortly after his father, at which point Mary, Henry's eldest living relative, became queen. Mary had been raised by her mother, Catherine of Aragon, who was a devout Catholic. She took the English throne and restored the Catholic Church as the one true Church of England. Flip-flopping religions one too many times can cause more than a few disturbances, and the Queen earned her nickname Bloody Mary while she worked to root out Protestants within the kingdom. Meanwhile, Elizabeth, her half-sister, had been raised Protestant by her father, after all, the entire religion was created so that she could, disappointedly in the eyes of her father, be born. As Mary burned through her enemy lists, Elizabeth was upheld as a legitimate option for the throne by those that supported the Protestant Church of England. She was even implicated as playing a role in the event known as Wyatt's Rebellion of 1554, and transported to the Tower of London by boat through what is referred to as the Traitor's Gate. Mary didn't know what to do with her 21-year-old sister. The girl was so popular that the Queen feared creating a martyr out of her by executing her. She initially gave her the ability to travel around the grounds. But after reports emerged that she had befriended a four-year-old boy who was bringing her flowers each day, Elizabeth was ordered isolated to the Bell Tower. When she arrived, she was purposefully marched past the scaffold that had been used to kill her stepmother, Jane Grey. 
the Yeoman warders also reminded her that this was the exact location that her own mother, Anne Boleyn, had lost her head. Elizabeth remained in prison for two months before Mary let her captivity end. The younger sister had cleverly written letters to the queen in which she pledged to be a loyal follower of Mary, which she was until the queen's death of influenza, upon which Elizabeth rejoiced and was named Queen of England. It was the night before her coronation that she returned to the Tower of London for the first time since her imprisonment. Another of the side stories accompanying William is that of the Bayou Tapestry. The events of William's life are well recorded for historians. We know, for instance, how many times William crossed the Channel, that he spent the entire year of 1073 in Normandy, and that he loved to eat rabbits. That last tidbit comes directly from the Bayou Tapestry, which is regularly used to tell the story of the 1066 Norman invasion. The UN's cultural heritage wing, UNESCO, eloquently refers to the tapestry as a memory of the world. The document was likely created by William's half-brother, Bishop Odo, to commemorate his cathedral in Bayou in 1077. The document is clearly Norman propaganda, which shows off Edward naming William as his heir, before then depicting the events of the Battle of Hastings and the death of Harold Godwinson. Although they know that it is propaganda, Historians love the Bayou Tapestry because of all the clues that it gives to us about what life in the Middle Ages was like. For instance, shields are accurately represented, as are the different types of buildings that are included within the tapestry. We suspect that William liked mutton, for instance, because there are multiple scenes which include it on the table near the king. From other documents, we know that the Normans ate quite a bit of chicken, boar, peacocks, geese, as well as eels. Each of these animals are depicted along the border of the Bayou Tapestry. The document was nearly destroyed a few times, first by the French revolutionaries, who saw little need for a church document that depicted the invasion of England. It was a lawyer who reportedly saved the document from being cut up in order to cover the soldiers' carts during the fighting. Napoleon then took an interest in the document when he planned his own cross-straits invasion of England. He restored the document to its original place in Bayou. The Nazis of Vichy France took particular interest in it and guarded it with a special force unit, which was charged to check on it once a month to ensure that it was still intact. As they were forced out of France, they left the tapestry in the hands of the Louvre, which began in 1945 to display it in its own specially designed room. The tapestry is 70 meters long and was stretched out to serve as a border for the rectangular room. This allowed the viewer to see the entirety of the document from beginning to end, or at least the end that we have, as the portion of the tapestry that comes after the Battle of Hastings is missing. 
The liberation of the tapestry from the Germans was a point of pride by the British, who erected a memorial near Bayou that reads, We, once conquered by William, have now set free the conqueror's native land. Halley's Comet even appears within the tapestry. Comets were considered to be the terror of kings, for the belief that they were omens of some great transformation or change. Halley's Comet appears to us once every 75 years. Its last appearance was in 1986, though, meaning that you're going to have to wait around until about 2061 in order to see it again. Englishman Edmund Halley used Sir Isaac Newton's gravitational theories and his historical references to comets that came about from 1531, 1607, and 1682 to hypothesize the existence of just one reoccurring comet. He left us with a prediction to look to the skies sometime in late 1758 or early 1759 for its return. Sixteen years after the scientist's death, the comet named after him appeared on Christmas night. Knowing its path allowed historians to go back and look at the past with a magnifying glass to identify references to the comet made by the ancient Greeks, the Han Dynasty of China, the Babylonians, and the Romans. Each appearance came with trepidation according to the history books. The Romans saw it in 66 AD as a star resembling a sword that promised the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, beginning the Jewish diaspora. It signaled the end of Attila the Hun's central European rampage, as well as the 1066 victory of the Normans. In 1222, it was likely seen as a sign from the great sky, authorizing Genghis Khan's planned invasion of Europe, and in 1456, the invasion of the Balkans by the Ottoman Empire was overseen by the comet's reoccurrence. 1986's arrival to our planet seems to have gone on without much doom or gloom, but its appearance in 1910 reminds us that our gullibility to misinformation isn't exactly a new phenomenon. The History Channel tells us that a French astronomer named Camille Flammarion warned everyone that the comet's poisonous cyogen gas in its tail might, quote, impregnate the atmosphere and snuff out all life on the planet. Remembering that an idiot is born every day, stores began to sell anti-comet pills, and a large number of individuals missed their chance to see the comet as they spent all night sealing up their homes. Of course, that was nothing compared to the unrelated 1997 Heaven's Gate cult, which believed that a flying saucer was traveling behind Hale-Bopp Comet, which travels a significantly further distance through our solar system. That comet was visible to the naked eye for 18 months, and thus inspired a number of interesting thoughts regarding its appearance. Foremost among those were the thoughts of Marshall Applewhite, the cult's messiah-like figure. He inspired 39 individuals to commit ritualistic suicide together 
in order to transcend and board the fleet of 33 alien spaceships, which he claimed he could see trailing the comet. Like most cults, we can definitely say that this one was nuts, as it included a procedures book that enforced the exact time members needed to take their vitamins, as well as the proper circumference for pancakes. The strict orders were supposedly to get into the routine that would be necessary to survive on the alien spacecraft, but why the aliens care so much about the size of one's pancakes was left unsaid. The Hale-Bopp's next return is scheduled for the year 4,385. Thus, none of us need worry about the craziness that will occur when it finally makes a return appearance. All things must come to an end, including the life of William the Conqueror. William fought off threats to his rule in Normandy and England for decades. He gave up his fight in 1087 after an accident related to his horse. There are quite a few references to the size of King William, including totaling how many rabbits he could down in one city. Thus, we believe that he was a large man for the times, perhaps even a glutton king. And while his mother may have used polite terms such as calling her son Stocky, we have every reason to believe that as an old man, William was quite fat. The incident in question involved his horse rearing into the air and pushing the top of the saddle deeply into the king's sizable belly, causing internal bleeding within his intestines. He survived for six weeks, likely in excruciating pain. But the medicine at the time was not advanced enough to save the conqueror. Shockingly, it was said that the king's attendants all abandoned him upon his death, leaving his body exposed in ruined France. This is assumed to be true for the fact that A, travel was difficult during this time, B, he had a lot of money on him and thus was an easy target for robbery, and C. William, like many English kings, had serious disagreements with his children. His firstborn son, Robert II, unhorsed his father in battle in 1078, in a war that would decide whether or not he succeeded his father as the Duke of Normandy. That son was just two to three days' ride away from William as he lay painfully dying, but he never went to visit him. William II, who was also the second-born son of the king, was granted rule of England, separating the family's holdings by the English Channel's division. Upon hearing of his father's death, this son immediately rushed to the royal treasury of Winchester. After securing his father's fortune, the young man garrisoned a number of fortresses along the southern coast before being crowned king of England in 1087. Putting his father in the ground was a secondary concern to his own. The third son would again reunite Normandy and England as King Henry I. After the Battle of Tinchebra in 1107, during which Henry defeated his older brother Robert. This time the invasion began in England, with Henry crossing the Channel and invading Normandy. For his insistence that England belonged to him, 
Robert spent the last 28 years of his life locked up within his brother's castles in England and Wales. With the infighting regarding succession, it makes sense that no one tended to the conqueror's body. Believing a body that has internal intestinal damage evidently isn't a good thing. A wandering knight is said to have taken the body after having embalmed him, something that should have occurred significantly earlier. The burial location was 70 miles away, which the knight traveled faithfully with the body via a leisurely cruise of the Seine River. When the knight finally got there with William's body, he had to have been flabbergasted as the designated church was under dispute with one man claiming that the former king had unlawfully built the cathedral on his privately owned land. All that's interesting, a website that loves grotesque moments in history, tells us that by the time the burial could actually take place, it had been weeks since William's death. The residual heat from a fire that had occurred within the city, combined with the delay it caused, had resulted in William's bowels inflating to even larger proportions than they had been while he was alive. As the grave diggers were lowering William into the hole in the ground, they realized they had not accounted for his inflated size. Thus, the hole was too small for William to fit. And when they attempted to squeeze him in, he burst. Yep, William the Conqueror's body literally exploded during his burial. Reports tell us that the funeral goers were covered with the Duke's putrefied innards, and the entire area was filled with the overwhelming stench of decayed flesh. If you thought that the Conqueror was allowed to finally rest, you would be sadly mistaken. The Catholic Church in 1522 removed what was left of his remains and reburied him within the Church of St. Anti in Normandy. That tomb was then robbed in 1642 by a Calvinist mob who had heard rumors that the tomb contained William's treasurers. William's final disturbance came at the hands of the French revolutionaries, which destroyed his monument before gathering his bones and tossing them into a nearby river. Amazingly, one single thigh bone was forgotten, and it was placed beneath a marble slab in front of the altar at the Abbey in 1987. An inscription now reads, Here lies the invincible William the Conqueror, Duke of Normandy and King of England, founder of the house who died in the year 1087. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look at the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.